there are two things that mountain bikers hate. Number one, change. Number two, the way things are. And why does Pink Bike seem to be unable to accommodate this? <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to another Pink Show. I'm Mike Levy and today we're talking another suggestion from the comments for something to talk about in today's episode. Now this one is from Pink Bike user Simon87 who commented under episode 106. He said, you should definitely do a pod on how and why you guys and listeners got into riding. It would be an interesting listen for sure, he says. So today... Mike Casimir and Sarah Moore are going to do exactly that. We're going to talk about our first exposure to mountain biking and what attracted us to it. We're probably also going to reminisce and cringe over some of our earliest riding memories. So consider this a warning that it could end up sounding like a bunch of old-ish people talking about how often things broke 20-something years ago. We'll see. But before we get to that, I want to go in a completely different direction. Casimir. What do you think you'd be doing right now if you never found mountain biking? Is there another sport that you think that you would have embraced as much as you've embraced mountain biking? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been a climber at certain points. So I could do rock climbing and I could run. I don't typically run very much these days, but like I ran Dude, cross those country. those are boring. Those are well, both slow. Yeah, that's why I mountain bike because <laughs> they're better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I could do something like that as my summer sports. But yeah, mountain biking is the best one I've found. Not like off-road scooters or... No, I never tried that, but Rollerblading. I rollerbladed in seventh grade, but then mountain yeah, biking. Then I found mountain biking. So like, I definitely played <laughs> a lot of roller hockey and then like, oh, mountain biking is way better. But Yeah, okay. Did you yeah. play any team sports when you were young, Cass? Uh, yeah, but I'm so bad at all of them that like the coach would just yell at me and I was, the, I was the worst kid on every team, like the worst baseball player, the worst basketball player. I don't even know. I can't even imagine how bad I was. Like looking back, it was, it must've been so horrible. I can't imagine trying to coach me. What is it with mountain bikers who suck at ball sports? Like that's a normal thing. Yeah. You know, like if you were to, if you go to a mountain bike race and you like throw a tennis ball at a mountain biker. They basically just turtle. Like, we can't, we're bad no, at these things. Yeah, no skills in that department. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was a good thing I found mountain biking. So, it avoided a lot. Of, it saved coaches a lot of hassle in high school. So, I just ran cross country in high school because that was basically an excuse to ride my mountain bike. So, I was like, I'm yeah. training. But, yeah, we'll get into that later. Sarah Moore, what about yourself? If you if you didn't find mountain biking, what, what sport do you think you'd be doing right now? I know you have a trials motorbike. Would you think you'd be doing that? Uh, probably not. I, like, was a cross-country skier growing up and the whole reason I got into mountain biking was really is cross-training so I don't think I would have discovered any of the gravity side of mountain biking which I eventually did discover if I hadn't been a cross-country skier so I probably would have just stuck with being a cross-country skier for longer I think that would have been like my full-time sport and in the summer you have roller skiing which is kind of like roller blades but no brakes <laughs> oh my scarier. god it's terrifying <laughs> i do not miss that at all <laughs> and then we did used you to do like that, oh yeah you yeah did that sport? i got some serious road rash from crashing on roller skis they're like like mini mini skis but they have no brakes and you use your cross-country ski boots in the summer and cross-country ski poles and you look like a nerd just like going along the road sometimes i see people doing it do you do that on the highway on roads and stuff uh you need to like pretty good pavement because like you would be skiing along these roads and if there's any cracks it was absolutely terrifying also no brakes 
and like your legs would kind of go numb from like the chatter if there was too much that like sounds like <laughs> a great freaking time <laughs> oh man and you have to go over these like like you know like gates or like cow uh, little gates on the road sometimes those are absolutely terrifying you have to like stop and like walk over them you don't just jump and just air them yeah yeah no (laughs) i've i've definitely seen people doing this and i just want to say first off that you of course you have to be like fit as hell like this takes a lot of effort to do this it's cross training and who cares what you look like when you're out there but also it looks kind of silly that one looks especially silly doesn't it yeah and the silliest part of it is that often because they don't have brakes we would like ski to the top of a really big hill and then our coach would like drive us down because it was too dangerous to go down (laughs) reverse (laughs) reverse shuttles exactly that sounds like something i would do sarah that's embarrassing (laughs) yep hey you guys know who we're missing for this episode james smirthwaite and his pro mountain boarding history background would be great for this episode so James is here in spirit anyway, which yeah. mountain boarding is definitely cooler than whatever weird sport you're talking about there, Sarah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get into the news. The first thing we've got to hear about, Sebstot did a review of that Starling Spur gearbox bike, Sarah. How did that go? Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so that Starling Spur is hand-built in the Bristol, UK, using Reynolds steel tubes. It's a 170-millimeter bike. The Starling said is built for double black laps and alpine seasons. I think that means it's like good for riding the alpine because it's pretty durable. It has an Effie Gear 9-speed gearbox with 440% range, and it weighs in at 40 pounds in a size extra large that Seb tested. That's 18.1 kilograms. Uh, that's with Kushcore, so you could remove a bit of weight if you remove that. And it costs 3,330 pounds just for the frame. Seb said that this bike fits a pretty narrow niche of riders. Why was that? Well, there's a lot of things going on. First, the weight and the fact <laughs> that it's got the gearbox. And it, yeah, it's essentially a downhill bike that you could pedal, but you might not want to pedal it a lot. That's kind of an interesting concept, I think. I, I think for the right rider, someone's going to be like, that's the bike I need. Because the gearbox obviously appeals to a lot of people. But it still kind of has those gearbox issues where you can't, um, shift under load, even though it does have a trigger shifter, which that's sweet because we always complain about the twist shifters and a lot of gearbox designs. So yeah, it's you know it's it's kind of more of an interesting bike rather than a revolutionary you know change everything in the future kind of bike. With a zillion treks and giants to specialize and everything else to to choose from out there, not specifically right now with all the bike shortages, but usually it is pretty neat that there's niche stuff like this out there. Like I don't think this is a bike. For me, and probably not for you either, Kaz. No, I don't think it'd be the... I like the the concept, but it's not something that I would be saving all my pennies for. But I know there's got to be somebody out there that's like, that's what I've been looking for. They just want a bike that lasts, hopefully, you know, a long, long time that they don't have to touch, but they can just keep thrashing around on hard trails. Could be fun. Yeah. I remember when I rode that Zeroed, I mean, jeez, I, I moaned and moaned about climbing that bike. It was such an oinker. But on the way down, like, there's definitely something to not having a cassette and a derailleur. The suspension on that bike was amazing. And I gave Seb's review a read. It sounds like he had similar impressions about the rear suspension. The damn thing, it just, like, works so well. In other news, Brian Park wrote an update explaining where we're at with combining Beta and the Pink Bike teams, which is that we're now all on the same team, actually. So Pink Beta doesn't really work. So we're taking suggestions from you guys. Beta, oh, Mike has a suggestion. I saw somebody in the comments put down if they get a uh, a membership at beta and they have a, a PB membership or an outside membership or whatever, then they become 
Master Betas, which is pretty damn good <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> oh, you're gonna need a common gold already. I don't know if that makes it into common gold. <laughs> Uh, so Beta will have articles written by Elliot Jackson, Andrew Neefling, Blake Hansen, and of course, longtime bike mag writer Ryan Palmer. And if you're thinking about making a comment about the Beta and Pink Bike thing here, just go and read that FAQ that Brian wrote in his article. It might have the answer to your question or concern. Uh, we also answered a ton of questions in the comment section on that article, so your answer might be in there. There's actually now 556 comments, and they are largely reasonable and level-headed. Thank you, everyone. Um, there's also a ton of comment gold in there, which is great to see. We'll get to that a little bit later. Was there anything else we, sorry, we wanted to add on that? No. God, no. <laughs> I'm good. Let's move on. Matt Beer wrote a bike check on Remy Morton's very unique Come and Sell Furious park bike this week. It has a 26-inch Maxxis Minion up front and a massive 3-inch wide 24 inch Juro DH tire out back. The mini mullet uses 135 millimeter Hope cranks made for kids because the VB sits 19 millimeters lower than standard thanks to those smaller wheels. What were some of the other things that you guys thought were interesting in, in this one? I like the fact that Remy bought a 2014 Fox 40 for his 26 inch front wheel from the buy and sell. I think that was pretty awesome. <laughs> That Yo. was neat. Yeah, yeah the you whole don't see stuff like that. Yeah. The whole bike is just such a specialty specialty thing for him. Like, there's no, you have to be able to have the skills to ride that bike to its potential. You know, like we'd all have fun on that if we rode it, but I don't think any of us are going to be doing like grinds. Like, we're not going to take the derailleur hanger off so we can do like grinds on logs and things like he's doing. Not on purpose anyway. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> could we could we take a second and talk about tire pressure? Yeah. He literally runs twice as much tire pressure in his rear wheel that's three inches wide as i do in a 2.35 inch wide tire yeah that's 45 so much. psi in his rear tire <laughs> that's as hard and as 40 rock. up front yeah <laughs> yeah i like how everything was like so detailed about this is exactly why i've done this and this and this and it really seemed to make sense but really just for him it wouldn't really make sense for anybody else as far as i know yeah, that was a super interesting article, and it was cool to see uh, Remy's reasoning. Like, sometimes we see these freeride bikes, and I feel like a lot of times the freeriders, like, I don't know, they're just like, like, tell me if I'm wrong, Kaz, but like, 26 for life, and there's like no reason or what. It was just neat to see Remy's reasoning for his component choices on this bike, and they make sense when you think about it, and you watch him ride, and you're like, oh, yeah. This is it. This makes sense. Yeah, exactly. It kind of reminds me of like what maybe like five years ago now when I first started noticing those fastest fuck guys show up in the Whistler bike park. They're just yeah. a bunch of dirt bags and they were all on old Iron Horse Sundays with profile cranks and just giant like 24 inch rear wheels, kind of like what Remy's running and just kind of like it's definitely a throwback, but then their riding style was so ridiculous and very BMXy that it was kind of like, all right, this makes sense for what you guys are doing. You're, you're crazy, but I can appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Didn't one of those fastest fuck guys, didn't they have like a rebar cross brace welded onto their handlebar or something yeah, like that? It sounds or... familiar. They're very interesting, strange, funny, good, like conversation starter bikes. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So there was a, a super funny comment actually underneath Remy's bike check. Reefer Southland, he said, we were onto something back in 1999. <laughs> yeah, definitely a strong throwback <laughs> yeah. with his bikes. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense. If we look at something a little bit more modern, Kaz, you also published the first ride on Canyon's new Spectral 125 this week, which you call the trail bike with enduro geometry. What did you think of this one? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a, so basically it's 125 millimeters of rear travel with a 64 degree head angle. So that's really slack. Um, kind of similar geometry actually to the Norco optic that we tested a couple of years ago. That was bike of the year a couple of years ago, um, but slacker. So degree slacker. And I think the bike, it's an interesting one because the comments people, a lot of people were just hating it. Obviously none of them had ridden it yet. And they're like, this is dumb. But I think for some people it's going to be a really fun bike. If you live somewhere that's got you know, jumps and some more techie stuff, but you don't really need the full enduro, all the travel. I think it could be fun. I'm surprised that people weren't into it. I mean, obviously some people are into it, but usually like a bike like that, short travel, super aggressive geo, like you see people being like, oh, fuck yeah. Why, why were people I, into it? I think some people don't get it. Like they don't understand what it's for and they don't understand that there's other options out there that they could purchase besides this. Like this isn't your Ripley. This isn't your tall boy. No. This is its own kind of thing. And it's a fun thing, but obviously it's not for everybody. And even, you know, I've been riding a decent amount and it's fun, but I don't know if it would be my one and only bike. Like I've got, you know, for tighter, more kind of cross country rides, it does feel like more of a handful than a, something with a little steeper head angle, a little bit shorter, um, numbers would be, but you know, it exists and there is, there are, a, there is a place for this bike and I'm glad it's out there. Yeah. One, one more question before we move on. When I think about riding short travel bikes with modern or more than modern geometry a lot of times i have a ton of fun on them and then all of a sudden i'm like oh shit i don't have enough travel you know like yeah. the geo lets you like really get into things yeah you can definitely yeah, do that okay. on this. like there are some moments <laughs> i'm like oh no like this is i'm going too fast on this bike but you forget so which is fun yeah. but also like uh well, if i had more travel i could just be in control at this speed but instead so but yeah we've actually got the aluminum one the aluminum version of this bike, the more budget friendly one. And we're going to be doing that, uh, featuring that in the value field test. So we will see how it handles some flatter kind of chunkier terrain and see if it, if those numbers work well there. It's also interesting to see, like at the last field test, we had that Canyon XC ish bike. What was that called again? Yeah, the neuron. Is that the one you guys? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. The, uh, Lux. Oh, the Lux. Yeah. The Lux. Lux. Yeah. Lux trail, I think, which we all found really conservative. And then boom, Canyon comes out with this thing. And they're yeah. like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is the opposite of the lux <laughs> yeah exactly it's it's neat to see like very differing takes from the same brand and obviously it's different people involved here but yeah yeah cool we also went all the way back to 2002 in our latest throwback thursday with seven bikes that are turning 20 in 2022 there's the santa cruz v10 specialized epic fsr with the brain mountain cycle shockwave 9.5 and more in there definitely worth checking out I hadn't actually even started riding mountain bikes, I don't think, in 2012. So, unfortunately, none of these were on my wish list. But I know you guys had a couple on here. What, what were on your wish list? Oh, that V10. That <laughs> V10. I remember. So, I remember Kaz in the valley. A, guy, a local guy named Perry got a V10. And this thing, this bike, it was that frame. He had, like, Maori titanium spokes on that thing, like all the fanciest stuff i think it had a dorado up front and i remember looking at it and just thinking the head angle is so slack how does the fork work uh -huh. you know <laughs> and now i'm thinking the same thing when i look at the donut but i would say that v10 would be i would love to get on one of those yeah that would be the same boat i remember when that i do remember when that specialized the brain came out how futuristic it seemed but then having yep. ridden them and like, you know, worked on them and stuff, they seemed less futuristic. Clunk, yeah. clunk, clunk, <laughs> clunk. But when it did come out, that bike was like, whoa, they've, fought, they've solved it. It's going to be like as efficient as a hardtail on the climbs and plush on the downs, but not so much. Still, not yeah. so much. <laughs> I do remember these bikes. But yeah, for these days, if I was going to pick one of these to ride for like a little retro ride, that V10 for sure. Let's move on from old bikes to questions. The first one is from Mikey MT. 
Cass, he wants to know about our favorite grips. He says he's been reading a lot about push-on grips as of late and that many have made the switch over to those instead of lock-ons because they feel better. He's been riding Ergon GE1s for years. He's considering trying something new and different. What do you like and why? The push-on thing is fine, and I get it. But for me, because we're always switching bikes and stuff, I just don't have time to safety wire grips on. And I get along pretty well with a decent amount of lock-on grips that are out there. So, um, yeah, these days for, uh, let's see, from Ergon, because he says he already uses some Ergon grips. I like the GR. Let's see, wait. There's a lot of numbers and letters in there. Their product names. The GF R1 Factory. So basically, it's their slim grip. I know. Good memory, Just roll, guys. Rolls Good off memory. the tongue there. <laughs> yeah. But it's like their gravity series grip. Um, but it's got it's pretty thin. It's got a little texture, so it's not slippery. And the rubber seems like it lasts a while. Like, it's not as soft, I'd say, as some of, like, the softer yeah, They're quite hard, those Ergon grips. Yeah. These ones They're are firm. soft. These ones are a little softer than, like, the normal, more ergonomic ones, I'd say. But mm-hmm. um, they're still on the maybe firmer side. But... So I like those. I like the DMR death grips and the softest compound that they make. That's probably my top favorite DMR death grips. And then uh, just ODI, the single clamp lock-ons and the thinner style. Those are also my favorite. So basically for me, it all depends a lot on hand size really and preference. So, but even though I have big hands, I like thin grips. So my, my only concern when it comes to grips is one lock-on collar on the inside, please. And not too big because I have small child hands, unlike Casimir. What yeah. about you, Sarah? <laughs> Um, well, it's funny that Kaz was able to like roll off that the name of the Ergon grip, and I'm like, what's the dating grip that I like? Oh, Lockjaw, right? <laughs> so yeah, because Kaz is a professional. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a professional grip. But... <laughs> so yeah, the Lockjaw is the one that I've been riding recently, and it does use a little bit faster, but I think the I just like the extra comfort of it. The, it just feels really good. I do usually wear gloves, so I know some people are super particular about the rubber on their gloves um, with when they don't wear gloves um but for a person who rides with gloves and has like sensitive hands i just love daily lockjaw grips there you go next question up to mtb he was kind of curious about the three-legged dog uh henry and i did a podcast it might have been last week we talked about some of the strange things we found and on one ride with uh, my buddy ricky we found a three-legged dog in the middle of nowhere in this forest uh, we ended up finding the dog walker that lost him, but up to MTB wants to know, did he have four legs before the dog walker lost him? Oh. <laughs> that would have been a much sadder story if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Our last question is from Pawn Sacrifice. This one is pretty interesting, actually. He says, where do you place the team in terms of general mountain bike riders capabilities? He wants to know if we're total legends, if we're washed up. Uh, He goes on to say, it's like watching car reviews where a part-time race car driver or a retired race car driver is using every inch of the road and track, drifting and complaining about the car and the limit. But what's the point of reference for you people and bikes, he wants to know. So Kaz, this this is probably a podcast on its own maybe in the future, but let's talk about this for a minute. Maybe the first question I should be asking you is how good do you have to be to review a bike? It kind of depends, but I think being able to, I think, almost as good as possible but not a full-on like world cup pro is mm-hmm. is a good metric because i think some of the pros or the professional racers get so their abilities and what they're noticing and things is just so different from the general population so i think you kind of want to have somebody that's a obviously an advanced expert level rider so they can ride 
pretty much any trail anywhere, travel around the world, ride different things without getting in over their head. But they also be able to need to realize that people of different abilities will be riding that bike and they may not, you know, I think they can't get super locked in on the little tiny, tiny details, but also be able to not be like, every bike is amazing. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's tricky to find people that can review bikes well and that can, can kind of sort through all that stuff. But I'd say the crew that we have here, everybody, every single tech editor is a, you know, expert level rider. We have people that are, have raced world cups before. Um, I'm slightly more expert than Casimir, everybody. <laughs> Maybe a gravel grinding, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you make, you make all the good points there, Kaz. I want to touch on this whole pro thing. First of all, Kaz and Sarah, we both know pros who are total meatheads who don't even know what air pressure they run. So just because someone's a pro doesn't mean that they're knowledgeable when it comes to bike setup or what their bike is doing under them, for sure. That doesn't mean that they're terrible riders because they're obviously not because they're pro. Just imagine how good they would be if they checked their tire pressure. <laughs> um, the other thing is, is I've had more than one product manager, engineer type person at a company tell me that they often don't look to their pros to develop their bikes for certain reasons or at a certain point because that pro is so fast that like what they're doing on the bike, it doesn't have a lot of relation to like what Kaz and I and Sarah are doing on bikes, you know, like especially if we're talking about frame rigidity and stuff like that, a lot of times they're looking for different things, you know, and they don't care if their bike lasts. So I think to test a bike, you need to be able to ride at like 80 something percent and feel what's happening and be able to relate that to people that are reading or listening to your video, watching the video. And then you also need to have like a good backlog of bikes. Like us three, we've ridden, geez, I don't know, like who knows how many bikes at this point, guys? Yeah, I think a Zillions. Yeah, there's so many. (laughs) Yeah, and having that backlog, it's a bit of a catch-22 when we bring somebody on to test bikes and they don't have that, so it makes it a little bit harder to compare. But anyways, we'll talk more about that in an entire podcast um, because there's obviously lots to talk about there. But yeah, that's our take on on that pawn sacrifice. All right, let's get into our discussion and talk about how we started pedaling bicycles around the forest and why we thought it looked like a good idea. And we're also going to talk about some of our earliest and cringiest ride memories. Kaz, I know that lots of people grow up riding bikes around the neighborhood into nearby forest, probably building sketchy jumps as a nine-year-old or whatever. But mountain biking is a very different thing, of course. Do you remember your first experience Exposure to mountain biking not your first ride or anything but like the maybe the first time you saw somebody mountain bike or maybe you saw it on television yeah i don't remember seeing it on tv but i had a buddy in seventh grade james and he was the like he told me about mountain biking so i don't even remember seeing it but he was just starting to tell me about it. he was doing mountain biking he'd gotten a mountain bike somewhere and then i bought a mountain bike magazine which actually it probably was the actual mountain bike magazine that was a title so this yeah. had been maybe like April of 95. And then I got that Kaz, magazine. Kaz knows the exact day. <laughs> kind of, pretty you much. You still have that got, issue with the magazine, don't you? It was, like, yeah. it was like a buyer's guide. It was the one that had every single mountain bike and all the prices and all the components. And then I just like obsessed. And yeah, it was weird because I just wanted a mountain bike, even though I never really had. And so I, I, I got a bike right pretty much right away. But I don't remember seeing it on TV or anything until that magazine and i was like oh look at this this looks really cool why do you think you wanted to try it so bad like you just you were looking at pictures of bikes was it the gear that attracted you or was it being out in the bush what was going on definitely a mix i think the gear but i also like the idea of just going out in the woods and exploring and just getting out there like i always you know growing up before having an actual proper mountain bike we'd always be you know running around in the woods like the back of our the where i live the backyard was basically like a swamp so we'd go out and 
fall into the swamp and throw mud at each other. It's just like we <laughs> yeah, played yeah. we played a lot, and like I'm from a big family, so there's I'm the oldest of seven kids, so like outside is where you want to be because you don't want to be inside a, a small house with seven kids. So having a bike was like a way to escape. Yeah. What about yourself, Sarah? What was your first exposure to mountain biking? Where did you see it first? Okay, I don't know if this really counts, but we we also had like trails in our backyard, but I never would do anything other than like go walking on them or hiking. But I remember my brother and my second cousin decided to take their mount their bikes that, you know, I thought were just for kind of going on the road, maybe some light gravel, and they took them out on these trails. And I was like, guys, that's so dangerous. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that was really I definitely was not hooked at that moment. I yeah, I think when, when I did sta- you get hooked though? I think when I started doing like some local races, the first race was on a golf course and I was on my hybrid. But it was still a mountain bike race, and... Sarah Moore, gravel grinding before it was cool, everybody. (laughs) It even had, like, the little squishy thing in the seat. Like, it was, like, an old person's hybrid, and I did this mountain bike race on it. And I was like, that was really fun. And so I eventually got a real mountain bike. Probably in, like, grade... I think it was grade 8 when I started mountain biking for real. And I kind of went from, like, nothing to I ride cross-country mountain bikes oh, hey, I race cross-country mountain bikes within, like, the span of a year. So it was <laughs> it was all cross-training at first, though. Who convinced you to do that first race? Like, how did you decide to take your hybrid and go racing? Uh, I think it was, like, on our training plan or something, and it was, like, near our school where we – I, like, I went to a sports Tra- study Training plan. Like training <laughs> plan. Yeah. <laughs> training plan. Okay, back up here. How did you get into mountain biking and why? Okay, so I grew up racing – well, I grew up cross-country skiing, and then I got into racing cross-country skiing – so by the time I was in grade eight, I went to a school that did, it was a sports study school for cross-country skiing. There was a bunch of other sports, but I was in a sports study program for cross-country skiing. So I went grade eight, nine, and 10. I went to a French school in Joliette, Quebec, and I would, we'd have like training blocks within the regular school day. And huh. so, you know, in the winter. That's very different than my school. <laughs> I don't know about you, Cass. <laughs> yeah. My eighth grade was, was not a, like that. That was a public, a public high school in Quebec, so that was kind of cool. Um, wow. I had to take a bus one hour each way. That was the part that sucked. But we uh, we would, you know, do racing and cross-country ski training in the winter. But, you know, there's like September, October, November, and then in the spring, and there's no, there's no snow on the ground. So we would, you know, mountain bike for cross-training, run, hike, do that roller skiing, which is great. But my first exposure was because of these mountain bike races that I did in grade eight. When was the last time you went roller skiing? That's what I really want to talk about is roller skiing. <laughs> you would love roller skiing. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, probably. Like when I graduated from high school, like grade 12, I kind oh, okay. of made the transition. Like I was kind of doing cross-country ski racing in the winter and mountain biking in the summer. And then I decided to just focus on mountain biking as soon as I left High school so i guess yeah grade 12 would be quite a while ago like yeah <laughs> 12 years maybe so you got into it through your cross-country ski training program at school yeah kaz you got into it from your buddy james mm-hmm. he he introduced you to it and you then you bought a magazine yeah what's yours mine actually comes back to magazines as well i think magazines have played a huge part in in a lot of people's early riding careers, if you go back to 90s and early 2000s stuff, um, I was, I don't know, probably 13 and grocery shopping with my mom. And there was a mountain bike action on the newsstand in the store. And on the cover, 
was a BMXer named Robbie Rupe, and he was riding this prototype 10-inch travel downhill bike with this big, long swing arm and no linkage and, like, one shock with, like, a 20-to-1 leverage ratio probably and a <laughs> dual-crown fork off a motocross bike. And I remember looking at that. It was the gear at first. I remember looking at that and being like, good shit, look at that bicycle. I need that. And around this time is when I was, like, a lot of, you know, young teens i was on my bmx bike and i was in the forest building jumps doing that kind of stuff and i think i had realized that i wasn't physically capable of catching or kicking a ball of any sort i had been on teams for years my family made me do like all the t-ball and the soccer and stuff and i was kaz i would always get like the most improved award and stuff (laughs) but the coach would usually like i would play like seven minutes of a game i would mostly just sit on the side it was embarrassing So yeah, I saw a cover of Mountain Bike Action. I was like, holy shit, look at that. That's amazing. And I started pushing my BMX bike up the gravel roads. And then I would just come back down to gravel roads. I didn't know what a trail was. I had no idea, really, for the most part. I didn't know that. I should say I knew what a trail was, but I didn't know there were actual mountain bike trails. And uh, unbeknownst to me, at the time, there was a bike shop, Brad's Skate and Cycle in town. And a couple guys out of that shop were building some trails on the mountain. And... uh yeah, it just went from there. What was the first bike that you had? Like your first mountain bike? Yeah, so I did the thing on the BMX bike for a while, and then I convinced my parents to purchase me a bike from Sears. Do you remember the Sears department store? Yeah. I, yeah, I think they're gone now. Oh, yeah, they're probably out of business. Yeah. yeah, I do remember Sears. They yeah. have a big Sears catalog you get, and you can pick out your Yeah, Christmas a huge presents. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Is this such an old person <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I remember magazines. <laughs> You guys remember when the Sears catalog would show up? <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. So they bought me a uh, a steel mountain bike of some sort. It had a gray paint job with sparkle sparkles underneath the, the clear coat or whatever was on yeah. there. And it had a dual track suspension fork on the front. And uh, yeah, that poor bike had a very, very hard life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think we've all been riding long enough that at this point, there's probably no excuse for us not having our shit together when it comes to being prepared, I think. Right, Sarah and Kaz? Like, we make sure our bikes don't fall apart. We're dressed mostly appropriately for whatever ride we're doing. We're not going to bonk on the trail and curl up and die out there. Which is exactly what I remember doing on some of my early rides, Sarah. I also remember <laughs> things like hitchhiking in the United States to cross the border illegally through the bush into Canada after bonking super hard on a ride. Did you put that in a podcast? <laughs> I don't know. Are they going to track you down all these years later? This was this was this was different times. It was long, it was before nine eleven. It was very different times. I will say though that border now where I cut through it has like sensors in the ground and stuff and. Uh, a couple years ago, well, probably 10 years ago, I was out there on a road bike ride and somebody got a flat or something like that. And we were like, the border's like 10 feet to your right and the forest is right there. So we're like stopped and we're fucking around. We're fixing the flat tire or whatever we're doing. And within like two minutes of stopping, a big black truck like pulled out of the forest and like Wah! drove up to us, slowed right down, gave us the eyeball and then disappeared in the forest again. Yeah, they do not mess there. around. No, they don't yeah. mess around. There's sensors and yeah. radar. And, yeah. That's the ride, Kaz, that I remember pulling up to a restaurant. You know the highway to Glacier, like the highway to Baker? Mm-hmm. There's a restaurant along there, and we were coming back, and I was like 
crying, like riding five kilometers an hour. I didn't even bring a water bottle with me. It's like nice. 200 kilometers. I don't know what I'm doing, oh my you know? God. I've got a beaker. Yeah. yeah, that's like a serious ride. <laughs> yeah, I was like I was like 14 on a road bike. I don't know what I'm doing. We, I remember we pulled into a restaurant. And I went inside and I literally was almost in tears begging them for food. And they gave me like bacon off somebody's plate. And, <laughs> nice. Oh, God. Anyways, Kaz, I know you're dialed these days, but take me back to little Casimero. How bad did you mess up back then? I don't think I really messed up, but I did weird things. Like I wasn't, I was a strange kid. Like when I was 12, I, I think maybe I've told part of this story before, but when I was 12, I entered a, it was a metric century. So, you know, a hundred kilometer ride and it was a road bike ride, but I thought I could just take my mountain bike. This is the same one I bought from like Dick's Sporting Goods and just put some <laughs> slick tires on it. So like I saved my money and put some slick tires on it. These like, they're still pretty wide, but just slick. And then I entered this ride and just, yeah, I rode the. 62 miles or whatever but everybody else showed up on road bikes obviously because it was a metric century and i was just like yeah. out there by myself riding for hours and hours <laughs> i fell asleep by the side of the road at one point like i remember sitting on a guardrail and just like nodding off and then waking up and like oh i gotta finish this and just like i finished it but like i finished it and then nobody was at the finish line because it was like so much like it took me so much longer than everybody else and like i don't even know how my parents knew how to pick me up or anything so <laughs> That was pretty early. I was 12. So wow. were, you, were you aware of the draft back then? Like, were no, you I had no clue no about way. like anything. It took me a couple, like eventually I figured out like I, but so yeah, from an early age, I liked weird, like long rides. I'd go out by myself and just like ride for hours and hours. And I don't think, I don't really remember bonking when I was really little. Like, I think the bonking starts when you're maybe a little older, like maybe in college, early college days, we go on some like nasty long rides. It's when the, the confidence grows, but the yeah. smarts don't. You can go like a little further and you've like, just didn't, your diet is even worse than when you're a kid. Like, yeah. I just remember, like we just went to Moab and all we ate were oatmeal cream pies. And then we wondered why we were getting heat stroke. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. We've just been eating sugar and just, I feel weird, but yeah. And then. I would do some just I don't know I just kind of like rode by myself a lot in the woods and that was kind of it like nothing there's no like big mess up but definitely like the sense of exploration is always I've always been into that like I remember same era like between the age of 12 and 14 we figured out we could ride through this whole big long state forest and find a subway sandwich shop on the other side and that was like oh we went to a whole nother town and now we can get food here and then ride back and that was like <laughs> a huge adventure you know We're like oh we got a sandwich so yeah, like that, so. simpler times I, yeah. I remember stuff like that and thinking like back then you could just I, I feel like we could just drop everything and go on an adventure and we didn't know where we were going and it didn't really matter and we were out there for seven hours in the rain wearing a cotton t-shirt and shorts and I remember not caring you know like I remember coming back and like stopping at Dairy Queen and just being like super happy that I got onion rings and a hamburger and like nowadays though Kaz like if we're going out for some sort of ride where we're going to be physically tested, I feel like we think about it a lot more, you know, like we plan more. Yeah. Is I think true? we, well, yeah, I think you kind of know what's to expect. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, fair, yeah actually. You don't actually plan that much. What? You don't ever know where we're going either. News? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm bad. Yeah. yeah. But like little me, like I would have maps. I would have like all the printed out paper maps and I would plan oh, my really? route. Yeah. Yeah. And like I would figure it out, I figured out that power lines are a good place. Well, they're not actually good, but in my mind, like no. power lines are guaranteed to have like some sort of trail underneath them. So I'd be like, I'll just follow this power line. So a lot of my rides just involved like getting scratched by the brambles and the overgrown stuff underneath power lines, but I could connect to like pretty big zones until I eventually figured out that I could ride on hiking trails, which are even better than power lines. And there's like this network of hiking trails near my house that I don't I don't even know if what the like it was one of those gray area things, but they were great for mountain biking. 
I'm just imagining you with your paperboy bag that's like full of map quest things. You're like, okay, where should I go next? <laughs> when I found out about camelbacks, I was all about it. So I had one of those old ones that's just basically like one sleeve with one tiny pocket on the outside. And I would even race cross country racers with the camelback because I was like, I need this. This is important. Like it's too hard to reach your bottle. Like obviously now you would never race an XD race with a camelback on, but I thought that was important for racing. Yeah. Kaz, when you were a young boy, did little Casimero want to be a certain kind of rider? Like, did he open a magazine and be like, I want to be a cross-country person? Or, I mean, downhill wasn't specifically kind of as much of a separate thing then. But were you out there specifically trying to do something? Or were you just out biking? Mostly out biking. Definitely on the cross-country side of things. I think high school me thought I could be a like a professional XC racer. And then I got into more endurance stuff. Like, I wanted to be John Stamstead. And I just liked the yeah. idea of badass you know, yeah i did like 24 hour race when i was 16 or whatever solo because i was like that's what i should do and downhill seemed too scary to me like there was a, a guy that I, a kid that i went to school with that he was racing downhill and it seemed in my mind i was like that's too dangerous like that's stupid i don't want to do that like xc for life and then that obviously changed luckily but um yeah i was full xc through like high school but even my xc rides i was still riding like techie east coast trails and not just it was a mix. And I rode road bikes also just to, to train because training was important. <laughs> my, right. my training program, I wish I could see what it, I mean, I know what it was, but I wish I had like written it down somewhere because it was pretty weird. Like I would shift <laughs> to my hardest gear and then not let myself get out of the hardest gear for the whole ride because I read in some mountain bike magazine. That's, that's how you got strong. Dude, muscle tension exercises. Those yeah. are super important. Cadence of three. Muscu yeah. <laughs> vélo. Uh, we'd have to like go up the hill really slowly. There was like a whole group of us, you know. Eventually, I, after I joined the like i did the cross-country ski program i also joined a mountain bike club eventually i got i went from my hybrid to an actual mountain bike a 400 dollars da vinci cactus and then we started training and so i remember doing those like training sessions and we would find this hill and we had to go in a hard gear and just go up this hill and then uh-huh. we'd, you know bike down and that was our training session so you were on to something you know yeah i even got a paper manual once from because i did have a eventually joined like the local like a capital velo club was what it was called out of the local shop so i was like on a, a bike club team kind of thing and they gave me some like paper training manual and i would that thing was like my bible like i would do whatever it said to do and i would go to like i didn't have a trainer like a stationary bike at home so i'd go to we had a gym membership and i would go there and just like hog the trainer bike for hours and like these little old like soccer moms would be like can i use the bike like i'm doing my training and i'm like 14 you know <laughs> and i'm there for so long and they all hated me yeah that's just in the hardest gear uh <laughs> Sarah, was it always about fitness for you in those early days? You said you started riding because it was cross-training for your skiing. Did it stay fitness-orientated for you throughout your youth, or did it eventually become like riding with buddies and more of a fun thing? I would say it was about fitness for a long time. (laughs) I mean, we would still do, like, we would do group training, and we would, you know, go out with a group of friends and so you know the people you trained with were all training as well so it was about fitness but we had you know we had fun we'd go out as a group and you know do different interval training or go for a ride or you know travel to races together and it was kind of like when I started mountain biking like I said it was for cross training so I kind of was expected almost as a little 12 or 14 year old to like win medals in cross-country skiing so like you already had like some pressure on you so when I started Mm -hmm. racing mountain bikes i remember my first mountain bike race was the canada cup quebec cup race at mont tremblant and it was 
Absolutely. That seems like a big first race. Yeah. Big first race. <laughs> what are you it was, doing? It was an hour from no home, pressure. you know. Well, it was a Quebec Cup as well as a Canada Cup. And there was like, I don't know, I think I was in the, I wasn't even a junior. I was whatever the category is before. Cadet. I was a cadet. Under 17. Yeah. And um, so I did this mountain bike race and it was pouring rain. And I think they made a mistake with the number of laps that my category was supposed to do. Because often if it's like, okay, you guys are going to do five and then it rains really hard and the course is way slower, they'll, you know, make you do four laps instead or something. So anyways, I remember doing this race and I was out there for almost three hours, which was almost an hour longer than the girl who won <laughs> and I remember just having the best time ever and I was like wow this mountain bike racing thing is really fun like you just have to finish the race like it was just like a goal to like finish the race and like I was like running half the uphills half the downhills like I couldn't really ride a bike like the more you're especially still in the positive mud. about it though yeah, it's crazy so you're excited. still loving I was it like, oh my coach is so excited that I'm still in the race like I'm still doing it I'm gonna finish eventually you know <laughs> Mountain bike racing was very different back then, wasn't it? Like, I remember doing cross-country races, and same thing, Sarah. Like, I swear I was out there for half a day. Yeah. Like, now you go to a cross-country race, and it's over in an hour, and I'm like, I paid $200 to race for an hour? What the shit? <laughs> well, it's way better for TV. Now, if you're, like, on the outside yeah. looking in, I don't want to watch a cross-country race that's an hour and a half. Like, I want to go ride. But if it's an hour 15, okay, like, I could probably watch most of that, you know? So, yeah, um, yeah the races used to be longer and yeah my first mountain bike race I remember was so long I remember my coach being like do you want a granola bar and I was like I'm fine <laughs> could you make me a sandwich <laughs> hey Kaz did yeah. you have a riding crew in those early years like your first you know two three four five years of riding did you have a riding crew yeah I did there was like three of us I'd say or, or three other buddies so four of us total that was kind of like the little crew but that kind of as high school progressed that definitely started to fizzle out like some of them just started not riding as much and so by the end it was pretty much just like me one of the other kids probably rode all the way through high school but i think the other ones kind of stopped or, or some of them just didn't get into it as much as i did like i just got fully obsessed and addicted <laughs> I feel like, like that's yeah. a normal oh. thing oh yeah, you exactly. want to go like, for wait. 12 hours on the spin <laughs> yeah. bike at the local gym yeah that's like weird. Wait, why are you still doing that so but then by then i was kind of like within i was working at the local shop and then just started riding with older riders and people that were that was kind of like what they did so it kind of switched from like high school buddies and then to the more shop buddies that older rider thing that you touched on there, I feel like that's, for a lot of us, that's an important early introduction to mountain biking. Like, I remember, I must have been maybe my very first mountain bike ride on a trail. I was talking to a guy on a chat room on the old specialized website. And Whoa. it turned out, oh yeah, and it turned out <laughs> this guy lived in the same town as me. And I might have been, how old was I? I don't know, 13 or something. 12, and you thought it would be a good idea to yeah. meet up with this guy <laughs> yeah. you met in the yeah. chat room. <laughs> and this guy named Paul, Polly, Pollywog, he was like, yeah, I'll take you riding. And I met this guy out at the lake, and I'd never met him before. And he was like, he might have been like 18 or something. And I was like, 12 or 13 i met him off an internet chat room we went riding and it was great and you know what <laughs> you know what i was in chilliwack mountain biking last weekend and i ran into him at the mountain Whoa. paul fernie yeah it was awesome yeah That's i see crazy. him about once or twice a year if you're listening paul thank you for taking me for my first mountain bike ride did you have old people taking you out and showing you things kaz 
Uh, yeah, I didn't meet them on the internet though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a great story. That's yeah, a great story. Yeah, no, like, like again, they were kind of like through the local shop. There, even there was, there was a guy who was a couple years older than me in high school, um, and so like I would knew he was the one who was like he was racing pro or expert or whatever at the time. I was like, oh, that guy's like he's really good. So eventually, he started taking me for rides, and it's funny now because he's still in the industry, like Matt Pasoka, and he. Oh shit! Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. So wow, Matt, small yeah, so, world. yeah, so Matt and I end up working up at the sh- at the same shop, but like he would go off to college. He went to college in Colorado, and he would just come back with stories about Colorado, and he would come back super fast. And I was like, oh crap, like I need to move to Colorado. So I eventually did. So yeah, so partly because of him was like kind of showed me that you could just do more than Connecticut riding. And then there's this other dude, Salem Mazaway, who was kind of like the local pro in Connecticut at the time, like super fast guy. He was also I think he was the driver's ed instructor and he did rally car races in his Volvo. Oh, I like so, him. Yeah, he was great. I like him already. <laughs> yeah, like he probably doesn't remember me at all, but he was the one that would like come in the shop and he would win like the local mountain bike races. And I was like, oh, like Salem's doing so well. So he would come on rides with us once in a while and just destroy us. And he was the one like he could just pull so hard in like a road bike ride. You'd be like, I can never ride that fast. But it was cool to see like the next level. So I think, yeah, it's good to have those faster people and ones to kind of like look up to. So. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Did you have. Did you have like a group of older riders that you looked up to and that kind of showed you the trails and what to do? Uh, well, I'd say like I was part of a mountain bike club and so you'd always see the people who were, you know, doing well and getting podiums at races and, you know, you'd kind of like follow them, but at the same time, not necessarily like go out riding with them. So I kind of remember riding mostly with people my age growing up, but then I remember like looking up to Marie-Hélène Fremont when she won a silver medal in Athens. That was really exciting. Or like uh, we'd go and watch the World Cup race at uh, Mont Saint-Anne every year. We never stayed for the downhill. That was why would we watch the downhill race? <laughs> now I'm like, oh man, why didn't I watch the downhill race? But we'd watch the cross country race on Saturday because usually we'd have like our Quebec Cup race on Friday, watch the uh, cross country world cup race on saturday and then leave on sunday and so i remember just like looking up to gunry de dale and catherine pendel and marie-hélène premont who would all be racing there and um yeah not necessarily riding with the older people i mean i guess like our coach was older who he would you know be leading our training and everything and telling us what to do but um not kind of the definitely not an internet chat room and (laughs) yeah you you mentioned gunrita there i mean didn't she win a World Cup? Was it last year or the year before? She was forty nine or fifty, and she's still she's still flying. Was she that old? Forty five? Yeah, something like that. I yeah, like she had. Yeah. I think she has three children too. Like she came back three times and won a World Cup and then retired. I think last year. Yeah. So, yeah, what a crazy career. <laughs> Levy, when did you start riding with Wayne? Everyone's gonna want to know. Like, you haven't mentioned oh, Wayne God. yet. <laughs> like, I, I remember my first ride with Wayne. Did you meet him <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Wayne doesn't have the internet. I don't think. <laughs> Wayne doesn't. Wayne doesn't internet. Um, Wayne. So I was. I was. I wasn't working at Pedal Sport yet. Pedal Sport's a bike shop in Chilliwack, but it was like my shop that I was going to all the time. And we would. They had stools there, and we were just hanging out there. You know, hours all the time. I don't know how I had so much free time back then. <laughs> Anyways, and I remember sitting at the shop and some riding buddies came in and I think they had met Wayne somewhere else or ran into him on the mountain and we all went for a ride together and yeah, there you go. There's my riding buddy Wayne. That's how we met. How old <laughs> were you then? Oh, I don't know. Uh, oh, then um, 17 or 18 right. probably when I yeah. was riding with Wayne yeah. for the first time. Yeah. I also want to uh, make a shout out to... Coach Scott, 
uh, Scott's somebody that I still ride with today, and he was taking me to races as a junior. He would take us to XC races and kind of show us the ropes and take us out on road bikes and pound us <laughs> to sand. And Kaz, you said something there. When you're young and you see somebody who's fit, it doesn't seem realistic that you would ever be that strong, right? It's yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's like the you're just like, how did they? How are they that fast? I'm, I'm as fast as I can ever be. But then obviously you can get faster. But yeah, when yeah. you realize how big a gap there is, like, oh, I got some work to do. Yeah. So I, I was riding with Scott on the weekend, and he's still fast. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I remember when I got into mountain biking, and I was like 12 or 14, and I was like looking up to these girls who were 12 or 14, but they've been riding and racing since they were like. I don't know, seven or something. And I was like, I'm never going to be good. I started so late. <laughs> and now I meet people and I'm like, yeah, I've been mountain biking for like, you know, over half my life. And they're like, oh yeah, I've been mountain biking for five years. And I'm like, oh, I guess I, I didn't start too late after all. <laughs> I was like 12 when I started mountain biking. <laughs> That's the thing, Sarah. It's I think it's crazy to think about where we are now because of bikes and all the things they've given us. Like back then you were a 12-year-old in Quebec on a – you know, doing a two-hour cross-country race for five hours, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> and now, mountain bikes, like, they've given us careers, hopefully, mm-hmm. partners, friends, riding cool bikes all over the world, all the good views and long skids and laughs and injuries. It's pretty ridiculous. Like, to think back, Kaz and Sarah, like, where you guys came from, and now here we are. We're, we're fucking up. We're on a podcast talking about bikes, and people <laughs> want to listen to us talk about bikes. It's crazy. Yeah, definitely surreal. But it's cool yeah. that you can do it. Like, if you just, yeah, I mean kind of one of those things it's like cheesy but if you just like something enough and you just dedicate yourself to it eventually you can there's a lot of pathways that open up but i remember being so single-minded from being like from like 15 to probably in my mid-20s nothing mattered except bikes was that the same for you kaz yeah definitely i think like i had a little break early like around 2000 my first went to college climbing started to take away a bit of the biking so there was like one season in there where i kind of climbed a little more but yeah, since then, it's just been like bikes, bikes, bikes. There was one season where Kaz only did 200 rides, everybody. What <laughs> lazy ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get on to Comment Gold and get out of here because the sun is shining. And I'm going to go for a bike ride. Comment Gold, the first one is from Raindown, maybe. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. This was on Brian Park's article about the pink bike and the beta update. He said... There are two things that mountain bikers hate. Number one, change. Number two, the way things are. And why does pink bike seem to be unable to accommodate this? <laughs> That's kind of the impression that I get. I yeah. think so, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's hard to win. <laughs> we hate the website the way it is. Why don't you move away from it? Oh, wait. Yeah. We don't like this. This is bad. Don't change. <laughs> All right. Our next comment, Gold. This is from Map Guy, And this was on an earlier podcast. I think it was one where Henry and I had been talking about something we were bonking or almost dying out in the bush or whatever. Map Guy says... I like to call those failed rides biomechanicals. I'd never heard of that. That's a great description of a bonk or like when you're not feeling so hot. I'm going to use that from now on. All right, that's it for this pink show and how and why the three of us got into mountain biking. But one more little update before we leave. We are all about to head off to Tucson for a value bike field test. So the editors doing this are myself, Casimir, Alicia, Ryan Palmer from Beta, and Matt Beer. Kaz, what bikes are we reviewing in Tucson? We've got a whole bunch. Uh, let's see. We've got – try to rattle them off the top of my head. I mentioned that 
the Spectral 125, so I'll have that down there. We're going to have the Specialized Stump Jumper Alloy, the base model of that. We've got a bike from Fazari. We've got a YT Izzo, I believe. Um, and then we got some hardtails. There's a salsa hardtail. Hardtails? Yeah. You gotta ride do I have to ride hardtails? You do have to ride hardtails. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> I know. <laughs> How, uh, the hardtails are all under $2,000, I think, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the full suspension bikes, are they under a certain price point? Yeah, those are all under $3,500. All right. Yeah. So in there, there's some more hardtails too. Would that be a diamond back? I got to look at my list. So, but overall, we should have around 10 bikes down there. Um, yeah, it should be good. Good crop of bikes. We'll do a bunch of riding, see how they go. It's going to be fun. Yeah. All right. So there you go. We're going to be down in Tucson for the next couple of weeks doing the field test. I'm not sure if this particular podcast topic was super interesting for you guys or not, but let us know because we could definitely do more of these. If you guys want to know how Henry, Matt, Seb, Christina, Tom, Brian, and or any others got into riding, I'll do more of these episodes. So let me know in the comments. On our way out of here, Casimir, quick answer. What sport do you want to try next? Uh, paragliding. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yep. Shout out to Alicia Leggett for that yeah. one. She's moving to town, so it should be easier to have someone show me how to paraglide. Yeah. You let me know how that goes. Yeah, well, you can be next. not doing that. No? What's your next sport? <laughs> Go-karts. Oh, yeah. What? You know, it says you've never tried before. You must have tried that before. Uh, well, I've tried it before, but not seriously. Like, I've only done rental karts. But mm. Chilliwack, the town where I'm from, has a very serious go-kart track. So uh, I'm going to plan on spending a whole lot of time there in 2022. Sarah, what about you? Uh, I never tried biathlon. Looks kind of fun. You like cross oh, that ski, weird. but you have that's a gun. That's weird. <laughs> no, I want to come. Sarah, if you do that, I want to come and do that. Oh, you know what the craziest part is? Is Nordic combined where they go off the huge ski jump. That Can we do that really too? Terrifying. Yeah, we with a gun. Definitely. No, try no, that. That, no. <laughs> that'd be sweet. You got to shoot the target in the air. <laughs> it's a two-part race. First, you have to do the ski jump, and yeah. then you go and do the biathlon. And uh, they, you can actually do it all in Whistler because the Olympics were there in 2010. So they have all. Do the they have a ski jump I can go off? Well, they have the. They do have the big ski jump still there. From do they have a little one I could go? I don't know yeah, if I'm ready to start one. with like every the big like one. Wednesday night. They have all the kids and they get like sledded up the hill and then they go off the little jump with their really really long skis. Oh yeah, I'm into it. I think. Yeah. I'd like to go off the big one someday, but they it looks go 140 meters. I know. Yeah. So crazy. What? Yeah. Uh huh. It looks yeah. like the closest thing to flying, other than yeah, like they're just full squirrel suit up there. Like I would like to try. A, medium version of that i don't know if yeah. I can... <laughs> okay we'll let you guys know how sarah's ski jumping wet in the next <laughs> podcast post in the comments below how and why you guys started riding and please for the love of cheese and rice leave us a good rating and share this episode if you enjoy it we'll see you next time